Uh, please open your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. Today we're going to focus primarily on one verse, John 3, 16. Last Sunday we began taking a closer look at one of the most famous conversations in the whole Bible, the conversation between Jesus and a Jewish leader and teacher named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night hoping to have a one-on-one conversation with him. Nicodemus had lots of questions. Nicodemus was hungry for the truth, and Nicodemus was thirsty to have a closer relationship with God. And I hope that you come this morning the same way as Nicodemus came to Jesus. I hope you come to church today with a lot of questions. I hope you come to church today hungry for the truth. And I hope you come today thirsty for a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. How many of you would agree with that? I'm coming today with questions. I'm coming hungry and thirsty. And if you don't come that way today, how many of you, by a show of hands, would at least like to be hungry and thirsty for more of God today? Amen? And so we want to be like that. And I've got some good news for you. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus answered his questions. And as he came hungry for the truth, Jesus Uh, quenched that hunger for truth by showing him the truth and teaching him the truth about the kingdom of heaven. And he was also thirsty for a closer relationship with God, and Jesus quenched that thirst as well. Well, Jesus was so faithful, he said in verse 3 what the secret uh, to entering the kingdom of heaven is. In verse 3, here in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So if you want the truth about how to enter the kingdom of heaven, how to live forever in that place known as paradise or heaven after this life, Jesus says you must be born again. Every person in this room, as we saw last week, unless the rapture happens first, every one of us will either be born twice and die once, or you will only be born once and die twice. And the secret to being born twice And living forever in paradise in heaven is to make sure that you are born again through Jesus Christ. So you could look at it this way. The second birth that Jesus says is so important is critical because your first birth, your natural birth, your physical birth, births you into this world, right? And the Bible says there's a certain prince of this world. What's his name? The prince of this world, according to the Bible, is Satan. So you could look at it this way. Your first birth, your natural birth, your physical birth, allows you to be born into Satan's domain. In other words, your first birth allows you to be born into hell. Isn't that encouraging? And the second birth is critical because that is the birth, the spiritual birth, that allows you to be born into heaven. Now, how many of you would much rather be in heaven than hell? So that second birth, once again, is critical. Jesus tells Nicodemus here in John 3 that each of us desperately needs this second birth, this supernatural spiritual birth. Only that supernatural spiritual birth can allow us to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Only that supernatural spiritual birth can allow us to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so here in John chapter 3, we read these words, and I want you to follow along. Today I'll read for you the middle part of this passage, and as I mentioned, our main focus will be the greatest verse, some would say, in the Bible, John 3.16. But to make sure we have the context, follow along with me, beginning in verse 3 of John chapter 3. 
In reply to Nicodemus, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Uh, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Well, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? But have eternal or everlasting life. Now, there are several passages here in the Gospel of John that I think are particularly well portrayed in the Chosen series. One of those that I think is really well portrayed is this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I want to show you this clip, and as we watch this clip together, be there in your Bibles, cross-check what you see and what you hear with what we've just read in the Word of God. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? (laughs) Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. Not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb because that would be a problem for me. My mother... May she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. 
You hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes. And I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen. And it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. But he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? At the end of that clip, that's the Apostle John writing down so he wouldn't forget the most life-changing words he had ever heard. Sticks pretty close with Scripture, huh? thought that was a pretty good depiction of how that conversation might have gone down. Well, this morning we are focusing on that one verse at the end of this little clip, John 3.16, that, as I mentioned earlier, probably is the best known and best loved verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's how that life-changing, world-shaking verse reads in a few other English translations. The New King James Version says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. The Good News translation puts it this way, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. And then the contemporary English version says it this way, God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only Son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. Isn't that an amazing verse? I've known this verse since I was a little kid. I memorized this verse when I was a little kid. But honestly, as I was studying this verse this last week, this verse knocked my socks off. It really blew my mind as I was delving into this book probably in a deeper way than ever before. And I really hope, especially for those of you who have known this verse for years, for those of you who have known this verse most of your lives, I hope that it will blow your mind today as well. Because it is that, that good. I want to break this verse down into its individual phrases and take this verse like a beautiful gem, hold it in our hands and turn it ever so slightly to behold the beauty and the power of this verse. Let's start with that first phrase, for God so loved the world. The New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, the common everyday language of the people in Jesus' day. And there are about seven or eight words in that Koine Greek language that can be translated into English as love. Because there are more words in Greek for love than we have available to us in English. And so there are three of these Greek words that are used in the New Testament that are translated as love or a close approximate of that. There's first of all phileo. Phileo is a tender love between friends or brothers. That's the Greek word for love that has that kind of shade of meaning. It's that tender love between brothers or friends. Then there's storge. This is a less known uh, Greek word for love. It's not found in its positive form in the New Testament, but it is found in its negative form. The absence of storge is mentioned a time or two in the New Testament. Storge love is a love for one's family. And then there's one that we've all probably heard of before, the word agape. Agape is the highest, most pure form of love. Agape is unconditional, sacrificial love. Even when agape doesn't get appreciated or responded to favorably, agape love always works for another's greatest good. And as you look at those three words, guess which ones of these was used here in John 3.16. Agape love. For God so agape loved the world. God so agape loved the world. God's love for lost and dying people is the purest and the highest form of love. God's agape love can't be squelched by anyone or anything. What that means is nothing you think, nothing you say, nothing you do could ever stop God from loving you. Let that sink in for a moment. Nothing you think against God, nothing you say against God, nothing you do against God can ever stop him from loving you. That's remarkable. William Barclay says it so well. He writes, God is not like an absolute monarch who treats each individual as a subject to be reduced to abject obedience. 
God is the father who cannot be happy until his wandering children have come home. God does not smash people into submission. He yearns over them and woos them into love. Notice in John 3.16 who God loves. It says God so loved the world. Not just God so loved Israel. Not just God so loved those who obey his commands. Not God so loved the people that he likes and don't drive him up his last nerve. Not God loved this person or that person or just this group or that group. God so loved the world. And that's a remarkable thing for Jesus to say. Over in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul writes, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Notice the first adjective that Paul uses in this prayer regarding love. I pray that you will grasp how wide is the love of God. Have you ever tried to wrap your mind around how wide the love of God is? Someone might ask, how wide is it? Well, I can say this for certain from what we read here in Ephesians 3 and elsewhere in the New Testament. God's love is wide enough to include every single person in creation. That's some pretty wide love. William Barclay writes, John 3.16 tells of the width of the love of God. It was the world that God so loved. It was not a nation. It was not the good people. It was not only the people who loved him. It was the world. The lovable and the unlovely. The lonely who have no one else to love them. Those who love God and those who never think of God. Those who rest in the love of God and those who spurn it. All are included in this vast inclusive love of God. Wow. God so loved the world that he loved even little old me. God so loved the world that he even loved little old you. Isn't that remarkable? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've strayed from God or how much you've disobeyed God or how often you've turned your back on God, he loves you with all his heart. Anyway, that is the agape love for God that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about here in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, next phrase, that he gave his one and only son. Saying that we love someone is the easy part, isn't it? Talk is cheap. Actually loving them, now that's a lot harder It would have been easy for God to say that he loves everyone, the good, the bad, the ugly. That'd be easy to say. He loves those he really likes and those who get on his last nerve. That's easy, but once again, talk is cheap. But God didn't just talk the talk, did he? He walked the walk, proving his agape love for the world as he gave his one and only son. Do you know one of the things that John 3.16 communicates? It communicates that God took the initiative. You see that here in this verse? God took the initiative. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. I didn't take the initiative. You didn't take the initiative. God took the initiative. God 
took the initiative before you and I ever thought of him. He was thinking of us before we ever thought of him. Before we ever turned to God, he turned to us. Before we ever loved him, he loved us. In fact, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what is Jesus saying in John three sixteen? He's saying that God took the initiative. When we were still lost and dying in our sins, God loved us and gave us the greatest gift in the universe. He didn't just give us money. He didn't just give us cars. He didn't just bring us a, a new house. Those are cheap and temporary gifts compared to the gift he actually gave us. He gave us a gift that would last through all eternity, the greatest thing he could ever give, the most precious gift that he could ever give, part of himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He laid down his own life, the greatest gift he could ever give us, because he loved us so much with that agape love. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says it so well. He writes, no sacrifice was too great. The best that God had to give, he gave. He gave his only son, his well-beloved. He was given so that all without distinction or exception who rest their faith on him might be rescued from destruction and blessed with a life that is life indeed. The gospel of salvation and life has its source in the love of God. Isn't that last line so good? The gospel of salvation and life has its source in the love of God. For God so loved the world That he gave his one and only son. Next phrase. That whoever believes in him. Just as faith in God was the key to being saved from the deadly effects of those venomous snake bites back in Numbers chapter 21. Faith in Christ is the key to being saved from the deadly effects of sin in eternity. Nicodemus had spent his entire life trying to be good enough and religious enough to make it into heaven. So what Jesus says to him here about belief and faith either brought him disappointment or relief. Now think about it. This man had spent decades of his life being as good as he could possibly be, obeying all the laws that he was told he needed to obey, jumping through every religious hoop he was told to jump through. And so if he had approached Jesus from a a, a place of pride... He would have been deeply disappointed by what Jesus says here. Your religion won't get you to heaven. Your good works won't get you to heaven. Let me tell you the right way to make it to heaven. Man, he would have been disappointed with that. So no, I want you to tell me that what I've been doing is going to pay off in the long run. But if Nicodemus came to Jesus from a place of humility, then he would find what he says here in John 3.16 to be a relief. Because ultimately, Nicodemus knew in his heart of hearts that no matter how many religious hoops he had jumped through, no matter how many good works he had done, no matter how many laws he obeyed, he didn't have assurance of eternal life. He hoped that he would make it to heaven, but he had no assurance. And so this would bring him great relief if Jesus were to say to him, I'm going to tell you how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. And you can know for sure by being born again, by putting your faith in me as the Savior of the world. And we find that Nicodemus did, in fact, come from a place of humility. He received what Jesus said about the ticket to heaven by placing his faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Let's make sure there's no question as to what Jesus means when he speaks of perishing. This word perish is a translation of the Greek word apolumai, which means to be destroyed, to be utterly lost. Just to make sure that we didn't come to church and miss the opportunity to speak a Greek word here, say that with me, apolumai. Okay, that's about half of you, not bad. Let's try all together, apolumai. That was pretty good. So Jesus is setting a clear, uh, clear contrast here in John 3.16. If you believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will be given the gift of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. He makes that clear here in this conversation with Nicodemus. But he also makes it clear if you don't believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will eternally perish in hell. According to Revelation 21, verse 8, hell, the eternal lake of fire, is the second death. So that's what we mean when we speak of that as an option. You can be born once and die twice. Well, what is that second death? According to that second to last chapter in the Bible, that is the lake of fire. That is hell, that place where for all eternity we're separated from God. And we're separated from God, which what that means is we're separated from all peace, all comfort. We're separated from all purpose. And we're separated from all love and separated from all joy and separated from all hope. What a horrible place that's going to be. That is, according to Scripture, the second death. So it bears repeating, you will be born twice and die once, or you will be born once and die twice. To say it another way, if you're born once physically and a second time spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, you will only die physically. Your spirit will live forever in the kingdom of heaven, but if you are only born physically and refuse to be reborn spiritually through Christ, you will die twice, once physically and once spiritually throughout eternity in that place the Bible calls hell. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, the difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. If you can see it on the screen, read that with me. The difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, some critics stand up and start to squawk a little bit. Now, wait a minute. You're talking about how amazing God's love is for us. He loves those who are religious and those who are irreligious. He loves those that are Buddhist. He loves those that are Hindu. He loves those that are Muslim. He loves those that are atheist, agnostic, everything in between. You're saying his love is agape. Nothing we do can stop God from loving us. If that's the kind of love that God has for every last person here on earth, then how can it say that God would ever send someone to hell? How could a loving God ever send someone to eternal damnation in hell? It's a valid question, isn't it? In a very real sense, God doesn't condemn anyone to hell. People condemn themselves. What do I mean by that? Well, years ago, a rather arrogant man was given the opportunity to have a guided tour of one of the most exclusive museums in the world. 
And so the curator of that museum took this man and gave him a guided tour, and he made sure he showed him the very best paintings in the entire gallery, the priceless paintings of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Rembrandt and Picasso, and he shared with him the greatest, most priceless paintings in the world that were displayed in this gallery. And after that tour was done, the curator asked him what he thought. And this is how the man responded. He said, I think those old pictures are ugly. And it was a waste of my time to look at them. And here's how the curator responded. He said, sir, I would remind you that these pictures are not on trial. But those who look at them are. That's pretty deep, isn't it? All the man's reaction had done was show his own foolish blindness to the work of arts that were right in front of him. With that in mind, F.F. Bruce says, what is true in the realm of art is equally true in the spiritual realm. The man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. He does not need to wait until the day of judgment. The verdict on him has been pronounced already. There will indeed be a final day of judgment. But that day will serve only to confirm the judgment already passed. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God become God's children. For those who will not believe, there is no alternative but self-incurred judgment. Really gets the cranks turning, doesn't it? William Barclay says it pretty well also. He writes, if when people are confronted with Jesus, their souls respond to that wonder and beauty, they are on their way to salvation. But if when they are confronted with Jesus, they see nothing lovely, they stand condemned. Their reaction has condemned them. God sent Jesus in love. He sent him for the salvation of those people. But that which was sent in love has become a condemnation. It is not God who has condemned them. God only loved them. The people have condemned themselves. Think about that last sentence again. It is not God who has condemned them. God only loved them. The people have condemned themselves. Oh, how our world and how our culture needs to hear this message that God only loved them. God isn't some vindictive dictator up in heaven that's jumping at the opportunity to throw people into eternal flames. He's not that vindictive. He's not full of vengeance. He's not full of anger and bitterness towards those who sin against them. God so loved the world is what the New Testament teaches us. And throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people could not grasp the unquenchable love of God. And it's not like it wasn't there in the Old Testament. It was there, but it would be upstaged by their thoughts of how God oftentimes would punish here on earth. And how it says that he will punish in eternity. They somehow missed the indescribable, unfathomable love of God. God so loved the world that he gave us the most precious gift he could have ever given us. He gave us part of himself. He gave us the Son of God who has provided a way for any person, male or female or young or old, black or white, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, to be snatched from eternal perishing in hell and be brought into eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. He holds out that gift of forgiveness and grace in heaven to everyone. And if we reject it, we're condemning ourselves. 
God offers us the highest form of love in this world and in the world to come. And it's a kind of love that is unimaginable, indescribable, mind-blowing. And that's the kind of love that God does have for you today. I want to share with you three life lessons that I think we can pull from this great scripture, John 3:16. Life lesson number one. No matter what you've done or how far you've strayed from God, you cannot extinguish his love for you. Someone next to you today needs to hear this. Could you read this with me? No matter what you've done or how far you've strayed from God, you cannot extinguish his love for you. Sorry. God loves you despite yourself. It's just the truth. He loves you despite yourself. On the other hand, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already loves you. Your good works and your religious deeds can honor God. Your good works and your religious deeds can glorify God. They can even bring God pleasure. But I'm telling you, the word of God is clear. Your good deeds and your religion can never make God love you any more than he loves you right now. How is that possible? It's possible because his love for you is already perfect. Think about that. His love for you is already perfect. His love for you right now in this moment cannot be improved upon. So you love him in return. You do good works in return. You serve him and his bride through the church better than ever before. But when all is said and done, anything that you do cannot help God love you any more than he already loves you because his love for you is not performance driven. It's perfect. And that's one of the reasons this verse blows my mind. It blows my mind. Life lesson number two. There's nothing you can say or do to deserve or earn God's love. You can only embrace Jesus Christ and the eternal life he offers through faith. Please read this with me. There's nothing you can say or do to deserve or earn God's love. You can only embrace Jesus Christ and the eternal life he offers through faith. Quite often, those of us who have been in the church the longest struggle with this lesson the most. It just seems so counterintuitive. We're convinced not only that our good works prompt God to love us more, but that our good works should make us more deserving of his love. But they don't. Suppose there was a a serial killer who murdered 100 people and he was eventually arrested and thrown in prison. Let me ask you, if that man who had killed 100 people were to be asked to be acquitted from his crimes because he walked 12 old ladies across the street, would the judge acquit him of his crimes because of the good deeds he did? Uh, What if that murder of 100 people had given all of his money to the poor? Would he be acquitted? Uh, What if he had done the best good deeds that any person could ever do? Would he ever be acquitted? And the answer, of course, is no. He has to be punished for his crimes. But somehow we get it into our heads that the good we do for Jesus Christ after we are saved somehow allows us to earn our salvation or earn God's love a bit more. And there's nothing you can ever do to get a step closer to deserving God's forgiveness and love. There's nothing you could ever say or do in service to Jesus Christ 
that could get you one step closer to that gift he's already offered you. So stop trying to buy your salvation. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Just receive it. Enjoy it. Savor it. Undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And that's what his love is for you and me. Finally, life lesson number three. A love like God's is too amazing to keep to yourself. One of the oldest hymns that is sung by Christians in the church today has a very simple title, simply titled, The Love of God. It's one of my favorite hymns. And the final verse of that hymn, I think, is particularly fascinating. The final verse of that hymn was written more than 900 years ago. So this is the oldest hymn that we ever sing, this final verse of this hymn, The Love of God. It was originally written in Latin. It was a longer poem. And part of that poem focused on how amazing the love of God is. Well, fast forward 600 years. 600 years after that poem was written in Latin, a certain nameless man died in an insane asylum. And when they were clearing out his room where he had lived for a long time, they noticed something that the attendants in that insane asylum had never noticed before. He had scribbled something on the wall of his cell. And after further study, they realized it was the 600-year-old hymn that he had translated from Latin into English. And so the best they could figure during times of sanity, when he was of sound mind, he had written these words in English on the wall that had brought him comfort and hope in his pain and his difficulty. And those translated words that he discovered went like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Some of you know the tune. This beautiful little verse was put to music about a hundred years ago. A couple other verses were added along with the chorus and it became that hymn we know today as the love of God. And it goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God. 
how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song oh love of God how rich and your love that is indescribable, unfathomable, unshakable, unearnable, undeservable, unpaybackable. Lord, we, uh, we marvel at your love. We thank you, Father, that you sent us the greatest gift you could ever send us. Sometimes we gripe and complain because we can't make the rent payment or the mortgage payment or the gas bill is too high or the electric bill is too high or we don't have money for gas in the car and we want you to bring us these things, but these things are small and temporary in comparison to the greatest gift that you ever gave, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, may we embrace it. May we savor it. May we treasure it. And may we pass it on to others around us that desperately need to hear this simple message. And no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've thought against God, no matter what you've said against God, no matter what you've done to turn your back on God, God loves you anyway with an everlasting love. And it's extending to you the opportunity to be forgiven in Christ as you embrace him in faith. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, I encourage you right now to reach out to him in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Lord Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life and be my Savior and my Lord. Please take my sin away. I accept your love and I will live for you for the rest of my life. Not to earn your love or deserve your love, but I'll live my life as a thank you gift for the love you've given to me. In Jesus' name, amen. John 3.16. Familiar? Absolutely. Fully appreciated, embraced by each of us. Not even close. We're just warming up. 
for all eternity, we're going to, over time, experience more and more and more of the truth of John 3.16. And as time passes, we'll be finding ourselves saying, wow, I didn't know the half of it. I thought I understood the love of God. But there's always so much more to embrace and understand. Amen. Never pass over this verse and say, oh, yeah, I know that one already. No, you don't. I should never pass over this verse and say, I know this already. No, I don't. I memorized this verse more than 40 years ago, and I haven't discovered the half of it yet because the love of God is that amazing. God bless you, church.